look at chapter 1 today. As Curtis read verses 3 through 7. If you're using one of those white Bibles, one of those pew Bibles, it's page 851. So if you want to turn there, real briefly, this letter was written by Paul, uh, we believe in the early 60s, roughly 30 years after Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross and was resurrected from the dead and ascended into heaven. About 30 years have passed from that major event. And Paul is writing this letter towards the end of his life. And he's writing it to perhaps his best friend. Someone he calls a a son to himself. And it's Timothy. Paul is writing to Timothy who is pastoring, we believe, a very large church in Ephesus. Paul left him there. Uh, A few months, maybe a year has passed and there's some issues going on in the church. And so Paul takes up a pen and he writes Timothy a letter and we have it to read today. And a lot of issues come up in this book that are very applicable to us today in the church. Let me just read through a few of the questions that are answered throughout this book. What is at the heart of the ministry of the church? How should women participate in church? How should men participate in church? How important is preaching ministry? What should preaching sound like? What is the church's responsibility to the poor? What type of leadership should a church have? Who should occupy these positions? What should worship from the church entail? How central is prayer in the life of the church? So all these questions, some controversial, all these questions get answered in these letters of First and Second Timothy. And these are all questions that we're still wrestling with today. This is why on a Sunday, right, you can go to, so, you can go to any church, right, and you're going to find a lot of dramatic differences. Now, hopefully there aren't a lot of significant differences at the, the core of what they believe and what's at stake in regards to the gospel. But unfortunately, we find that, that that is compromised in many churches today. And so just 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, Paul is writing because he sees that beginning to happen. Now, 2,000 years later, it's just worse. But he's writing to Timothy, and his whole purpose is, Timothy, I want to help you set your course. And you've got a church, Timothy, and you're a pastor of that church. You're the shepherd of their souls, and I want to help you set the course of your church. There is a right way to go as a church and there is a wrong way to go as a church. There is truth to be taught and there is false doctrine that could be taught. There is right and there is wrong and this is the right way. And Paul is very emphatic about that. And so he answers a lot of these questions helping Timothy and helping his church to set that course. And they are in, Timothy and his church are developing... In a culture that is, that is counter Christ. That is, that is counter scripture. That is counter everything that Paul is asking Timothy to do. Which of course only makes this, only makes this more difficult and more important. Now, the society, the world, the culture that we live in is no different in those regards. You could make a case that it's worse. Or we're further down a road 
that is opposite where God wants us to go. So we have to, we have to fight the good fight of the faith. It's a battle. It's a war for God's glory. So we've got our Bibles. We're going to need the Holy Spirit's help. Let's pray for that. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day that you've given us. We thank you for a place to meet. A place to meet that we can utilize throughout the week. A place where, Lord, if you're willing, the gospel can be taught. The gospel can be internalized. And the gospel could be missioned out from from these people here. We pray that, that this building and this facility would not end with our good, but that it would end with your glory. We pray that we would be open and willing to use what you've given us and to be a steward of what you've given us as much as possible. That we would be willing to have others come. Be willing to serve our our community, willing to serve other churches, willing to serve people. That this would in no way contribute to any sort of worldly contentment in our hearts. But that it would simply be a place of ministry. That we would hold this place very loosely in our hands, God. To be willing to, to let these things go because there are things so much more important. But Lord, in that, I don't mean to diminish our thankfulness for this place. Thank you, God, for what you have provided for us. Thank you that we have the privilege of sitting in this cool room in the middle of a hot day and have our children cared for as we sit and read your word together. It's pure heaven, God. So help us to see that and to remember that and to rejoice in that. Uh, Help me now to speak truthfully and to speak with unction. And I hope it's helpful for my soul and helpful for every soul that is here. And if there are eyes here that haven't been open to you, God, and if there are ears that haven't been opened and, and hearts that haven't been softened, God, we ask that as your word is being preached, that you would send your Holy Spirit And that, Holy Spirit, you would come underneath all this work and do a work in hearts. So that you, Lord, are treasured more than anything else. So we have high hopes and high expectations. And you've given us good reason to have them. So we love you. Give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Timothy chapter 1. If you're visiting, we teach expositionally here, typically, which just means we go at a verse at a time, and sometimes we just spend 20 minutes on one word. So, verse 3, we're going to do that a little bit, but it's going to speed up after verse 3, so bear with me and don't think we're going to have dinner following the sermon. As I urged you, Paul said, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, 
Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So we're going to start with the first word, I. I urge you. So this is Paul writing to Timothy. First Paul, a bit about him. We know from a book that was written in the year 150, we actually have a physical description of him. One of the things we find out about Paul and Timothy, while they were partners in ministry, from everything we can tell, they were not all that impressive in person. When you were around them, when you saw them, we learned last week that that's because God does this throughout history, throughout your Bible, and today, God chooses the lowly, and He chooses the lowly so that He would be glorified. It's so God gets all the credit. Because if God doesn't use the lowly, then there's a possibility of people taking credit for what's happening that God is actually doing. So you see God whittling down armies of 32,000 to 300 so that nobody can take credit. And you see God going and choosing the king from Jesse's sons and none of them seem to fit the bill. And he has to ask, Samuel does, for Jesse to bring his youngest son who's out with the sheep who he thinks nothing of because God means to make him king. And Paul and Timothy are very similar. We know from a physical description that Paul was short, stout, had a long nose, was bow-legged, and had a unibrow. A misplaced mustache right here. So he wasn't, he wasn't much to look at. In fact, you might chuckle. He's not exactly some in, intimidating force when he would walk up. And yet, Paul is the most influential person in the New Testament. There was not a more influential person you could make a case for in the world in the first century. Other than Jesus, Paul is more influential and has more of an impact globally than anybody else. If you're reading the New Testament of your Bible, Paul wrote most of the New Testament of your Bible. Dramatic conversion. Goes from being a persecutor to a pastor. A murderer to a missionary. One who's going from town to town with the letters signed by government officials so that he has the authority to arrest, even kill, if necessary, Christians. Because Paul was a man who started at a very young age studying to be a Pharisee, which was a religious sect that valued the law but made the mistake of adding to the law and began to value the external and what is seen more than the internal and what is not seen, which is why Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. You look real nice on the outside, but inside you are dead, dry bones. So this was Paul. He was externally zealous and devoted to God and his law, but he was missing the heart and he was missing Jesus And so Paul goes and studies in Jerusalem to become a Pharisee, goes back to his hometown in Cilicia, Tarsus. And then at some point, after the death of Jesus, hears about this uprising of Christianity, totally disagrees with it, and comes down on a mission to lead the extermination of Christianity. That is Paul. He is on the forefront of the the people that are exterminating Christianity. That's on his resume as a pastor. He becomes a Christian. How did he become a Christian? We read in Acts chapter 9. The way everybody becomes a Christian. He met Jesus. And no one really meets, meets Jesus and says, no, thank you. 
Nobody. You may hear a little bit about him. You may get some wrong ideas about him. But if you really meet Jesus and you really know who he is and what he's done, and God comes and removes the hardness of your heart that just rejects Christ and just wants me and my will and my preservation and my worship. When God comes and softens that heart and you see who Jesus is and what he has done for you, no one says no. So Paul is on this road to Damascus. Why is he on this road? He's going to exterminate more Christians. And Jesus literally, I mean, he's ascended now in heaven, sent his Holy Spirit, but he makes a special house call, comes back briefly for Paul and says, Paul, you are persecuting God. And Paul, of course, says, oh. First 30 years of his life, against Jesus. Last 30 years of his life, until he loses his head to Nero, the emperor, Jesus. This is Paul. Which is proof that anyone can be saved, by the way. Anyone can be saved. Because right, you have friends, right? Right now that you're thinking, you have a crazy uncle that you're thinking right now. There's no way. There's no way. This person may be, but him, impossible. No way. No way. God can save anyone. I, Paul, okay, and he is urging you, and this is Timothy. Timothy said this is like a son to Paul. Paul wrote 13 letters in the New Testament. Timothy shows up in 10 of them. Timothy was a third generation Christian under his mom and his grandmother, Eunice and Lois. Paul met Timothy as a teenager in the city of Lystra. Paul comes in like a college recruiter and sits down with Timothy and his mom and his grandma and says, I want you, Timothy, to come with me and to be a missionary. That's how impressive this guy was as as a teenager to Paul because Paul was looking beyond What would be seen externally, he was looking at the heart and saw a heart that was after God. And so Paul recruits Timothy to come with him on his missionary journeys. And about 10 years later, they're in a city called Ephesus where Paul had planted a church years before. And Paul's going to go and continue going from town to town because some guys are wired like that. They're missionaries and they go three years here and two years here and four years here and five years here. Hopefully they're married to women who are wired like that. They go all over. And then there's men who stay put. Like, I'm a stay putter, I think. When you say something like that, though, things get messed up. But I think I'm a stay putter. You know, so, so here I am. Lord willing, I'd love to be the pastor of Veritas till I'm dead. And I hope that's a long ways away. Like 40, 50 years or something like that. Maybe not 50. 40 be good. But Timothy's that guy. And so Paul says, I want you to stay. I want you to stay put here in Ephesus. So this is Timothy. He's there. And Timothy, very much like Paul, he, he's not all that impressive. We looked at that, yes, in that last week. He's very young. He's probably 29, 30 years old. And he he's now has this big church in his lap. He's young. Um, he's uneducated. 
He's inexperienced. Uh, he's, he's timid, it looks like, because Paul is constantly urging him. And then there's also, it, it, it's been believed you know, throughout history that Timothy even had, and it, it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of funny, but, but, but very practical when you think about it. He, he, we actually think he had some gastric issues, like irritable bowel syndrome. Like, as best we could tell, Timothy actually struggled with this. So this is, not, this is the guy you want, like, stacking chairs for your church. Like, you have the background ministry. But what does Paul tell Timothy to do? I want you to pastor this church. So you got short, stout, bow-legged, unibrow Paul. And he's standing there with sticky Timothy. <laughs> rolling into Ephesus. Here's your new pastor. It's okay. You can laugh. It's okay. It's funny. And Paul says, I urged you, Timothy. It's a significant word. It, 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 ha, it has a, a toughness and a, a tenderness to it. So the way that, that Paul is most likely urging Timothy is by, by drawing him in. Like his arm around him. He's pulling Timothy in close. And rather than just issuing him a command and say, do this. And don't back chat, don't argue, just do this, which he could do. Instead of doing that, it has more of this tenderness where he pulls him in like a son. But he's also not giving him the option to leave. That makes sense. So it's both. So he's pulling him in and the way he's doing this is, I just want to, I'm urging you, know, I'm reminding you, Timothy, stay put. Don't go anywhere. Because Timothy is probably thinking about bailing at this point. As you read the letter and realize what he's up against and who he is. And Paul says, I'm I'm urging you to stay. At the same time, he's saying, you know you can't go. God has called you to do this. And God often calls us to do things that we don't want to do. Or that are difficult to do. Or to see through to the end. And God will, through his word, right, make it very clear and come to us with tenderness. It says, listen, I understand. I've been tempted in every way. I've suffered far more than you. Listen, I understand. I want to urge you to keep fighting the fight, the faith. But then God is also saying, right, you realize, son, daughter, there is no option here. You must do this. This is the tone which Paul is is calling Timothy to stay in Ephesus of all places. A big city. 225,000 people at least. It was the Roman capital of Asia. In fact, the Romans were saying at this time, they called Ephesus the first and greatest metropolis of Asia. Ephesus was a, a port city. So you had a lot coming in. And then it also had a road that led to the interior of Asia. As well, the major north-south road that ran along the coastline was also going through Ephesus. So it was a place that where everyone was coming through. And so those kinds of places, even in the world today, right? Those are like the cultural centers, this is where typically new thoughts and ideas and culture starts, right? Even if you look at the United States of America, right? 
That's why you, you look at cities like San Francisco and New York City and you think certain things when you think about them in terms of culture and technology and what is new and what is cutting edge. And typically even cultural trends you'll see will start from the coast and head inland. And it doesn't, doesn't start in Nebraska. No one sees people in Nebraska doing things and saying, that's really cool. It's the opposite. Maybe they do. I don't know. It's the opposite. Sorry, if you're from Nebraska. <laughs> but here, right, are these, these places on the coast where, where things are constantly coming in. And so they're seeing things before anyone else is seeing them and hearing things before anyone else is hearing them. This is Ephesus where, where, where Paul is leaving Timothy. It's also a, a, it is a, an, an influential metropolis where, where there is a lot going on. The, the, the largest theater in the world is here, seating 25,000 people, where Paul was almost killed. But not only is it just influential, it's, it's, it's dark spiritually, which is why they need a church. It's dark spiritually. So a lot of ideas, but not a lot of good ideas. A lot of thoughts about who God is, but not a lot of good thoughts. The primary god or goddess that they worshipped was the the Greeks called her Artemis and the Romans called her Diana. But she was this goddess of fertility. And she had this temple that was considered one of, some called it the greatest wonder of the ancient world. And it was a temple built that was meant to be the center of worship for this Diana, this goddess of fertility. You remember in Acts chapter 19, you read the story about Paul and how much trouble he got in there because of the, there was a guy there named Demetrius and he had like a Christian bookstore of the day, but it was a Diana bookstore and he sold little Diana trinkets, you know, and keychains and things like that. And, and Paul came in and was obviously preaching Christ and people were turning away from Diana and turning to Jesus. So you can imagine what happened to the business, right? It didn't go well. And so Demetrius gathers together all the other bookstore trinket owners and, and, and they are enraged with Paul and, and run him out of town. And this is where Paul is leaving his dear son, Timothy. This is why Paul has to urge him. This is why he has to urge him. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain or stay put. Remain at Ephesus so that You may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So he says, this is why I'm leaving you here, Timothy. There's work to be done. Because I want you to charge certain persons. It means to command certain persons. You see the, the chain of command. So Jesus has commanded Paul. Paul talked about that in verses 1 and 2. Jesus has commanded Paul. Now Paul is commanding Timothy. And now Timothy is to command others, these certain persons. He tells them two things, Timothy. You can see this worked out throughout the rest of the letter. He said, there are some problems in your church. And you need to teach certain individuals. You need to go to them and you need to tell them to stop doing two things. One, stop teaching different doctrines. You cannot, you are not allowed to teach different doctrine anymore. And this charge is not this thing that Paul is doing with Timothy. This is just stop it right now. By the authority vested in me as an elder in Christ's church, 
Stop doing this right now. That's the kind of authority that Paul is now bringing down through Timothy to these teachers. Do not teach different doctrine and tell them also stop devoting themselves to myths and these endless genealogies. We'll look closer at that, but let's figure out who these certain persons are that he's talking about. We know quite a few things from them just by reading here. Charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So these certain persons, whoever they are, Paul doesn't name them. He just says certain persons. Everybody has certain persons. Right? You, can, you, you, have that, you have that conversation with somebody. You say, well, a certain person told me. And everybody knows who the certain person is. That's what Paul's doing. Certain persons. Okay? And then he just describes them. I'm not going to name them, though Paul is not afraid to do that. Hymenaeus, Alexander, he, he's not afraid to drop names in letters written to thousands of people. you imagine that today? Paul's just writing his letter, do-do-do, oh, he's nice, encouraging. Oh, and by the way, stay away from these two people. You can't do that. He did. But here he just describes them. Verses 3 and 4, we learn that they are teaching different doctrine. They are devoting themselves to myths. They're devoting themselves to endless genealogies and they're guilty of speculation. Speculation is where you start saying something. This is what it looks like in the church. Speculation is where you start talking about something like it's biblical doctrine, but it's not in the Bible. So it's speculation. It's maybe taking some ideas that are in the Bible and taking a verse from here or there, but then it's building this huge house that is not really founded on anything. It's speculation about God. Speculation about the world. Speculation about our hearts. Speculation about sin. Okay? And we can all be tempted to do that. We can all be tempted to take a verse and just go crazy with it. But we need to restrain ourselves and say, well, no, there's some things that are unknown and mysterious and we need to be okay with that. And then there are things that we're rock solid on. So they were speculating. But then he goes on and describes them more. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, there it is again, by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion. So we just learned something else about them. They're swerving from things. They're swerving from love. What he listed in verse 5. They're swerving from a pure heart. They're swerving from a good conscience. They're swerving from sincere faith. And because they're swerving from these, these certain persons, they are wandering away into vain discussion. You see, it's just, you see how this is going. So there's a problem that we'll look at closer in their heart. There's a problem in, internally. Something is off in here with their heart and their conscience and their faith. And now what's coming out is is speculation about what God's word says. And if you're going to speculate what's going to happen, you're going to end up wandering into vain discussion. You're going to have conversations that just don't mean anything. I've talked with some of you. And others you have experiences or are experiencing. You have relationships or friendships where there's just so much vain discussion. And this doesn't mean that you can't talk about the game. It doesn't mean that you can't talk about politics. 
It doesn't mean that you can't talk about your family and your job. Those can all be great things to talk about. Some of you, like me, you really enjoy talking about these things. But you need to be careful and make sure that you're also having conversation that is seasoned with grace, conversation that is about things that have eternal significance. Eternal significance. Especially when it comes to talking about God's Word. So, a lot of conversations that start with, about the Bible, that start with my opinion is, you just brace yourself when someone says that. And just be ready to just put a hand over one ear, maybe listen with one ear, but don't listen fully. My opinion is, or I think that, just you should be careful. Because we ultimately want to understand what God's words is. Not just have vain discussions about what maybe, maybe God meant. Now the problem is, is people won't always give you a heads up. They're not always going to tell you. Listen, I've got a really crazy, nuts, practically heretical opinion that I'd like to share with you. Because <laughs> if they did that, you would walk away. But nobody does that. They just say, did you know the Bible teaches? Really? I did not know that. And maybe sometimes we don't know. Which Paul is going to work out. We can't read 1st and 2nd Timothy and leave our Bible on the shelf all week. You cannot do it. You will not fight the good fight. You will fall. You will wander into vain discussions. And then a bit more about him in verse 7. Again, he's describing these certain persons desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Look at that dangerous combination. Look at the second part. The description of, of them is that they are without understanding. And they're making assertions from a false confidence. And now look at the first part of the verse. And, and what are these guys doing? They're desiring to be teachers of the law. So these are, these are men in the church who are saying, I'd like to teach a Sunday school class. Or what do you think about letting me preach one Sunday? Or I'll host a community group. I'm happy to teach. Hey, I wrote a little booklet. Would you mind if I passed it out? These kinds of things. And then Paul says, but the, the, these, these ones who, it's great. We've got people who want to teach. But here's the problem. They are without understanding. And they're making assertions that are based on, so they're very confident, on false confidences. So they're very confident, like, this is truth. But when you actually read the Bible, you find out, no, actually, it is not true. It's false. But they're coming across very confidently. This is, this is really common in the church. It's not always, but often, you have to drag your people who are truly equipped to teach and able to teach and get them to teach. You really, you really should. You really should consider teaching. You really should write something up. You really should be in there with our kids. You really should do these things. You can teach. But then you've got all these other guys in a line that say, I'll teach. And then you start talking to them, though, and there's no understanding, or there's little understanding. Where there's wrong understanding. But they want to teach. Desiring to be teachers of the law. See, Timothy's job would be easy if they just didn't want to teach. They just wanted to stack chairs. 
But they don't. They want Timothy's job. And so Paul says, don't go up to these guys and put your arm around them. Okay, that's not going to work. You need to go and stand face to face. And you need to charge them. Charge them. Why? What's his goal? Verse 5. The aim of our charge. Okay, so do not teach different doctrine. Stop devoting yourself to myths and endless genealogies. Stop doing these things. And what's the purpose? What's the goal? What's the aim of that? It's love. It's love. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody that you felt like was the loving thing to do, but they did not see it as loving? This happens often when when one Christian sees another Christian in sin and they go to them and confront them and say, you're in sin. And in our age, that feels unloving to many people. How could you, how could you say there's anything wrong with me? That's so unkind of you. Well, not if it's true. You should want to know these things. Sometimes these conversations are the most loving thing you can do. Paul's helping Timothy. He's probably struggling with doing this. I don't think he's wired to be this guy. Some of you are wired to be this guy. You're like, who do you want me to tell? No problem. Just line them up. You got, you got more than one? Just rack them and stack them. You, you're stupid. Stop. Okay. You, you're dumb. No more. If I ever see you again, you know, you have guys that can do that. And then you have others who just can't do that. Just like, oh, I just don't. But no, that's just not going to, that's going to be right. Can I, I just, you know. Hey, can we go out to coffee? I take out a coffee and yeah, so how are you doing? And how are the kids? And yeah, so what's up with that thing? You know what? Never mind. Let's just pray. Let's just pray together. Amen. And then they walk away feeling like something happened. Like we prayed together and I'm pretty sure that we're on the same page now. And if there's anyone holding the the, the confronter accountable, they say, well, why do you think you're on the same page? You just, you won't get anything substantial, nothing objective. It'll just be, well, I just felt like, that's a great start to a sentence. I just felt like we were just, you know, just, yeah, I don't see why we have a problem anymore. I mean, if he felt, then we're good to go. So you have people like that. I think Timothy was that guy. Because Paul continually is, is telling him, stay and do this. And, and God has given you a, a, not a, a spirit of fear and timidity. He's constantly telling him things like that. So he's reminding Timothy now, listen, Timothy, okay, you are loving these people. I know you have a shepherd's heart, Timothy. I know you want to love these individuals. I know you want to love these teachers. You are loving them right now. They may cuss you out and you may never see them again. But rest assured, Timothy, you are doing the most loving thing you possibly can. There are times in your life where you need to have those kinds of conversations with people and and they're not going to think it's loving and everybody else may not think it's loving, but it may just be the most loving thing that you can do. She says, that's our goal. Our goal is love. Love for God. Love for the church. Love for these people. You're loving them. You love God's glory. You don't want it compromised. You love the church. You don't want this false teaching infecting other people. So you're protective of them. You're loving them. And you love this person. Because if they could continue down this rabbit trail, it could just lead them straight to hell. 
And so you love them enough to tell them about it. He says, you're loving. Where does that love come from? Where does that love come from for us? A pure heart, a good conscience, sincere faith. Now, here's the problem with that. You cannot do anything to make yourself have a pure heart, to have a good conscience, and to have sincere faith. This needs to be an internal work of the Holy Spirit. This is why if you've ever tried to make yourself love somebody, you can't do it. So the prayer needs to be, God, create in me a pure heart. We sung that. It's in the Psalms. Create in me a pure heart. What is a good conscience? You know what your conscience is. Your conscience, this this moral rudder, this, this... this guide that God has given it, His law, His word written on every heart. Okay, that's why every human being has a sense of what is good and what is bad and what is right and what is wrong. That's not just because of evolution. That is not that we just have communally agreed on what is best to keep our species surviving. That's not where it comes from. It comes from God. Because created in His image. So we all have this conscience, but would you become a Christian, and the Holy Spirit begins doing dramatic work, your conscience is transformed. It's even sharper, which is why when you became a Christian, there were things that you did before that didn't think were wrong and didn't feel bad about and didn't violate your conscience. And now all of a sudden, you couldn't do it anymore. You couldn't explain it. It's just, I, just, I, just, I just can't because your conscience was transformed. And then as you grow as a Christian, not only is your conscience transformed, it begins to be informed by God's word. You ever read something in the Bible and say, I didn't know that was sin. Especially maybe when you're younger in your relationship with Christ. Or you hear a pastor preach, you're like, I didn't know that was sin. We did a series on respectable sins where we talked about these sins that are just kind of respectable and they're okay. Well, everybody gets angry and everybody loses self-control and everybody's a little bit greedy. And everybody envies and everybody covets. We need to covet. It's what makes our society progress. And, And then we read in the Bible that no. These things are sinful. So what's happening? Your conscience is being informed. And if the Holy Spirit is there, he says, yeah, that's good water. Drink that. That's right. And you rejoice in it. He says, Timothy, you, you love these men. And you're a good teacher. And if they're ever going to be a good teacher, they need to love and they need to have. They're swerving from this. They don't have a pure heart. They don't have pure desires. They have wrong desires. They don't have a good conscience. They don't have a sincere faith. It's hypocrisy. The opposite of sincere faith. You know, is your relationship with Christ sincere? Do you mean it? Is it legit? Or is it hypocrisy? Is it for someone else? Is it, for, is it to impress someone else? Is it to enjoy a, a certain community? Is it that you like a, a, a culture that fits your moral preference? Is, is, it, is it some other reason that you have, but you're not actually after Christ and you're not actually after Jesus and and. and, and, and repenting and turning from sin and and turning to god it's not a sincere faith it's a bogus faith so paul says but but this timothy if you go to these men and you tell them to stop this it's because you love them and this is where it's coming from okay an inward work that god has done within you and then finally this is what paul is after though what does he mean when he tells these men to stop teaching, number one, different doctrine. 
do not teach different doctrine. Different from what? Different from what God teaches. Different from what Jesus said. Different from what our Bible teaches. So, any doctrine, any teaching that is not rooted in God's revealed word is different doctrine. That's what Paul means. It's different teaching. And by different, we'll see in some verses, he means wrong. Not everybody means that today. Oh, I I never heard that teaching. That's interesting. Or that's a little different. When Paul would say different, he would mean, what I mean by that is, that's interesting and wrong. And this is right. This is why he said to the Galatians, you remember? Chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. Right? Planted a church there, leaves, and then he hears like, like crazy books are coming out of Galatia. And he can't believe what they're buying and selling and reading and believing. And he says, I am astonished that you so quickly, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And then he clarifies, not that there is another one. So don't think that when Paul says, do not teach different doctrine, that he means, well, different, but not the best. He means, no, there is no other doctrine. So if it's different, it's wrong. And it's not helpful. And it's dangerous. And God is not glorified. Or Titus 1, 13 through 14. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, which is a synonym for the teaching. Not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Or 1 Timothy 6, 2 through 4. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches, a, here's the same phrase, a different doctrine. Paul's going to say later in this book. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up. With conceit, and he understands nothing. So, if you see a book, and what it says sounds really good, like I can really apply this to my life, and I can really make myself more successful, and I can really be happier, and I can, this will really work with my children, and I can really see my church growing if I do this. If you read something like that, and it has a lot of appeal to it, but it is not rooted in here, then Paul says no matter how good it sounds, the author is puffed up with conceit. He's an arrogant mess. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 2 through 4, he understands nothing. Not a little bit. Like maybe you can read that guy's book. But this guy understands nothing. But it's very persuasive. And this is why he says this over and over and over again. Because we're susceptible to this. And we don't know the word as well as we should. And so we'll hear things that sound good, and there's a verse. Well, there was a verse at the beginning of the chapter. 
but then it will depart from it. But if you're not sharp, and if you're not a teacher, and if you're not under good teaching, you may just not know it, and you'll think the shack is a good book. And you'll swallow it and say, oh, this is beautiful. Beautifully unbiblical. Therefore, beautifully ugly. That's possible. Because it's not true. So no matter how great it is and how appealing it is and how beautiful it is, I mean, you would all admit this if you may not believe in truth. But if it's not true, if it's not true, it's ugly. It was the problem then, it's the problem now. So many that don't even think truth is a real thing. Right? We live in a society that, that says there is no absolute, objective, eternal truth. And if you're a Christian, you believe something very different. Very different. But our world would say, no, truth is subjective. And you'll, you'll hear things like, well, that's true for you. But this is true for me. And by that we mean, well, if you have believed something, there's no way of proving whether or not it's true, so I don't want to have the discussion. So if you, whatever it is you believe, if it makes you a better person and it makes you happier, then that's true for you and it's seen as a good thing and you should keep going with it. But I have something that is true to me. And they can completely, in our society, right, they can completely contradict one another, which is why the, the, the highest value is tolerance. Right? That's why tolerance is seen as a beautiful thing in our culture because that's what's necessary to keep all of us from killing each other because we really believe that, oh, we can believe totally different things and there is no truth and what's good for you may not be good for me. What's true for you may not be true for me. So if we're going to have that kind of system and not go to war with one another, then we're going to have to just be tolerant and say things like there is no truth. And so it's a belief that the best way to have unity and the best way to love one another is to, is to tolerate. When actually the Bible teaches something totally different. And the Bible teaches, no, actually, it's not just saying, the Bible doesn't say, no, screw unity and screw love and screw peace. It says, no, the best way to unity and the best way to love one another and the best thing for your community and the best thing for your city is that you do say, no, there is truth and you must believe this truth and if it doesn't square up with this truth from the one who made us then it's false and no matter how good it feels it's going to be fleeting and so out of love and compassion i know it's going to hurt your feelings but this is not true you have to say sometimes and it is not going to go well for you eternally if this is what you embrace and this is what paul is impressing on timothy we believe in truth jesus says i am the truth jesus said i came as a witness to the truth he said there is truth that will set you free the holy spirit that comes is called the holy spirit of truth 1 Corinthians 11 warns of a different Jesus and a different Holy Spirit and a different gospel. What does he mean by different? 
the wrong Jesus, the wrong spirit, and the wrong gospel. Most people, right, don't have a problem with Jesus and don't have a problem with the Holy Spirit and don't have a problem with good news, but they have a different Jesus and a different Holy Spirit and a different good news. And Paul is telling Timothy, Timothy, in your church, you need to take a stand and say, no, there's only one Jesus and one spirit and one gospel, and this is it. And you need to draw hard lines here. Let me blow through these verses. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 6. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith, that's the teaching, by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, if you wonder where the teaching comes from, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Or 1 Timothy 2.4, God, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 3.15, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. 2 Timothy 2.17 and 18, among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth. 2 Timothy 3, 6 through 8. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jamnus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men who oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth. And wander off into mist. Titus 1.1 Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Titus 1.9 He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. There is such a thing as truth. Be confident in that. And so what is bad doctrine? The answer today is most doctrine. Except that which is faithful to God's word. So feeling the weight and and hearing how important that is. I mean, you know why we named our church what we named it, first of all. Veritas is the Latin word for truth because we love the truth, the truth of the gospel, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That truth. You can imagine what happens. So here's Paul writing. In Acts chapter 20, when he's leaving Ephesus, he predicts it. He says, I know wolves are going to come into this city and it's going to get ugly. Now here it is years later and Paul's writing this letter and saying, Timothy, stand your ground. The effects of this are going to be far-reaching. Stand firm. Stand for truth, Timothy. 
Now imagine, and you won't have to imagine this, what happens in a society if we start saying things like, doctrine's not that important. Let's just serve people. Rather than know doctrine is important, that's why we serve people. Or, or, or doctrine isn't, isn't important. It just it causes division. When God's word would say, well, sometimes you need division. Because there are things that are true and there are things that are not true. Listen, if you don't see this or don't know this or don't feel this, know that this is pandemic today. That this is, this is an epidemic in our nation where truth is just put on a shelf. And even in churches where we're giving in to the temptation to not draw lines in the sand and not to say this is what God's word teaches and this is who Jesus is and, and this is what the gospel is. And let me tell you, I'm, I'm talking less about making our stance on homosexuality. I'm talking more about taking our stance on what the gospel actually is. Now the Bible has things to say. And what the Bible says is what we believe. When we start talking about how we need to get back to the truth and get back to doctrine, that could be misunderstood. I'm not talking about going fundamental. I'm talking about we need to know, to preach, to believe, to understand the gospel. Who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, what the implications are of the gospel on our lives. And we live in a culture, even an evangelical Christian culture, right, that is marginalizing the gospel. And it's not coming out, and it's not being preached. And if you're lucky, you catch it somewhere down the line. But it's not what's out there. It's not what's leading the charge. It's not what's in front. And we need to say, no, truth is so important. Doctrine is so important. There is good doctrine, and there is bad doctrine. We're not going to just teach it all and say you should make up your mind. We're not going to teach the bad doctrine. We're going to teach the good doctrine and the good teaching. We're going to encourage you to hold to it. And if you start teaching something that is against good doctrine, we're going to tell you to stop teaching things that are against good doctrine because we love you. And this is Paul's charge to Timothy. And then number two, do not devote yourselves to myths and endless genealogies. He's going to say over and over again, devote yourself to Christ. Devote yourself to the gospel. Devote yourself to truth. We didn't plan it that way, but this is a fitting message for our first Sunday here. I'm going to pray, and then we'll have, uh, we'll have some servants up here who will serve you communion. And then when you're ready, you can come forward, and you can take the, the bread or the juice. We ask you to take it back to your seat, and then we'll take it together as a family. If you're visiting with us, here's who, here's who, for who communion is for and, and who it's not for. Um, if you're here and you're, first of all, a Christian, 
And Jesus is your Lord and your Savior and your treasure. Christianity isn't just a notional thing or a nominal thing for you, but it really is Christ. Then this meal may be for you. We also want to say, because it's so rampant in our culture, that that if you're in a place in your life where you're saying yes to Jesus, but you think you can say yes to Jesus and not say yes to Christians and the church, and you just sort of have a coffee house church thing going, and you're bouncing around and you're not really committed to God's people, and you're not under authority, and you're not in submission, then we think you'd be heaping judgment on yourself by taking communion. We would encourage you to think long and hard before you do. But if you have a church home and you're visiting, take communion with us. If this is your church home or you think it might be, take communion with us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and his truth. Thank you for your grace that's enabled us to see this and to hear it and to believe it and to love it. I pray that you would move in in hearts here. You would help us to feel an affection for you as our God that, that maybe we've never felt before. That you would cause some to believe things that they've never believed before. That there would be people here who would turn from what you call folly. They would turn to what you call wisdom. Which is fearing you and loving you and holding tightly to your word, your truth that you've left us with. God, we pray that you be honored and glorified in the rest of our time together as we worship you. We love you and give you all praise, glory, and honor. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. For more audio and video, please visit veritas-truth.com. Bah.